Welcome to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast with homilies, talks, reflections, lectures, and other snippets of life from the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Find out more at diddycenter.org. Welcome, everyone, to Emporia State Catholics. This is Father Matt Nagel. I'm the chaplain director of the Diddy Catholic Campus Center, and I'm joined by Patrick Callahan. Uh, We are today talking about Orthodoxy Chapter 2, the maniac. Well, Father, welcome again. Uh, it's good to see you after a week. Before we go into the meat of chapter two, uh, I thought maybe you could just take us through a brief summary of the chapter so that people have an idea of the structure of his argument here. Oh, yeah, sure. So maybe you read the first chapter and you thought, this isn't that bad. And then you get to the second chapter and you're like, where is this guy going? Well, don't worry. Uh, he's not conventional, but uh, there is a a reason, there is a plan at work here. So it begins with what I like to call the second origin story, this conversation he has with a publisher about people believing in themselves. It's just kind of, he says, it's kind of a throwaway line that doesn't mean anything. He believes in himself, and, you know, he makes the comment that those who really believe in himself are in Hanwell, which he'll do this a lot. He will refer to something like Hanwell, which... If you lived in his day, you would know what he meant, but you don't if you live in 2020 United States or, or even if you lived in 2020 England. Hanwell is a, is a mental institution. It, it, today, it's called St. Bernard's Hospital. It's in West London. I think it was called Hanwell Asylum for the Insane. Um, there's another name in there, too. It doesn't matter. He has this, and so then the publisher says, well, if men aren't to believe in themselves, what are they to believe? And Chesterton says, I'm going to write a book about that. So it's the second origin story of orthodoxy. And he proceeds from there to talk about, really to to talk about original sin and insanity. And the basic idea here is is, uh, original sin is a fact that ancient masters of religion just began their understanding of the world with. It's a fact that Chesterton sees as common sense. I think he calls original sin or, or or the presence of sin as plain as potatoes or something like that. Um, but he says, well, the modern world won't recognize original sin, but they will recognize, or they do recognize insanity. So let's talk about insanity. And he uses insanity as kind of a template to talk about the problem of the narrow rationalism of the modern world. And he talks about a couple of ways that that can materialize, or uh, so to speak. Uh, one is materialism, and the other is is simulation, or what I like to call the matrix theory. We'll get into what those are, and then he contrasts this modern rationalism or this narrow rationalism of the modern world with imagination, with the poet's way of understanding the world, a way that's able to grasp the mysteries of the tra- uh, transcendent mysteries a little better, a lot better. Finally, he closes with this beautiful. Uh, these two contrasting analogies, the circle and the cross, and and I want to save that for when we actually get into it. That's really good. As we get into the chapter here, I thought what would be helpful this time around was if we dive down with an extended quotation before we open up our discussion here. So let's talk about everyone's favorite quote from the chapter first. The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason, which in some ways, I mean, looks... I mean, the chapter of the books called The Maniac. And here you have sort of encapsulated in two simple sentences. And this is what we talked about uh, last week as well, is that so often what Chesterton will do is he'll keep repeating himself. He just sort of holds up the idea like a gem 
but different ways that you hold the gem up, uh, it might finally catch the light for the right person depending upon where you're standing. This one angle has really uh, resonated with a lot of different people. But I wanted to um, maybe get your thoughts, and I have my, some of my own, we've talked a little bit about it, about this idea of what he's talking about here when he says reason and how we are and aren't supposed to take this quotation. So one of the impressions you could get is that the madman is the person who has lost everything but his reason. And therefore, if I want to be the opposite of the madman, I need to assume everything except reason, which is the wrong way to take it. But could could you take a little bit in in here? Absolutely. Uh, Right. And you're absolutely right that that this idea that the madman is someone who's lost everything but his reason. Therefore, if I get rid of my reason, I'm not the madman. That's not what Chesterton means here. Chesterton is what he's reacting against. Reacting against is the right word. What he is responding to in this chapter is a narrow rationalism. I, 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 would, I would say it's rationalism rather than reason per se. This rationalism is, is the idea that we can understand the totality of reality by human reason alone. And then very often that human, what is human reason, that itself is mutilated by some of the particular forms that this narrow rationalism uh, takes into account. We'll get into all that stuff. But you can contrast the idea that throws the baby out with the bathwater that says, okay, I don't want to be the madman, so I'm getting rid of reason with, with the Catholic response. I mean, John Paul II famously said faith and reason are like two wings on which the person ascends to uh, the divine truth. I mean, I, I think I'm butchering that quote, but... You no, get it's the okay. Idea. It's a, it's an overused quote anyway. Um, um, it's a wonderful quote, but unfortunately, it's one of those things... Um, in Catholic circles, when it comes to faith and reason, everyone just goes to that quote. Yes. Uh, and it's the same with this Chesterton quote. I think that we have to understand the larger context. Uh, otherwise, it becomes a, a totem rather than, um, well, it objectifies it and uses it just as a, as a bludgeon to, to beat the opposing side with, rather than entering into a true dialogue with other mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, what you're talking about there again, is it's we're not opposed to, to reason at all. Uh, but rationalism, where you take reason, you know, ratio is a, you know, it's a method, it's a tool, and it's not the, the object, it's not the telos. The end of the human person is not reason, but rather reason is one of the things that the human person has. It's a capability and so when you hold it up dogmatically, uh, it's not really reason against, say, faith, right? It, it yes. also is both a method and a deposit. Right? Yes. We talk about the deposit yes. of faith. But the faith is a set of things that we subscribe to. But with reason, there's not a set of things that you subscribe to, right? Those are postulates. Those are presumed things. And they are not the same as reason. Reason can be uh, used by anyone with any set of particular postulates, such as this world is just a simulation. Could we just say, could we just tell people who don't know what simulation theory is? Could we just, since we've been throwing that out there, let's just explain that to them. Well, the idea is that everything you perceive, since we know that our senses can deceive us, right? Think uh, in, in sort of the most like uh, non-harmful sense, right? The, the 3D optical illusions, like the magic eye posters or something like that. Yeah. Where you know that it's a 2D object 
but your eye perceives it as a three-dimensional object or any number of sort of things that have been proliferating lately thanks to sort of computer graphics where you have optical illusions, auditory illusions, anything like that. So our senses can deceive us. What if our senses deceive us all the time? What if all of this is just an input from somewhere? We're some sort of brain in a vat, or you don't even have to say a brain in a vat being fed uh, senses, because that's materialistic in itself, that all of this is an illusion, some sort of dream. Well, and excuse me, you know, this actually, some form of this goes back to the ancient world with the skeptics. You know, the skeptics would say something very similar. They would say, well, a stick appears straight, but when I put it in water, it's wavy. So who am I to say I just suspend my judgment? I suspend judgment. So they're, they're basically what they're doing is they're punching holes in the idea that our senses, our, our senses, our five senses can help us ascertain reality. And so then they're suspending belief. It sounds stupid in a sense, but it is one of those forms that this extreme rationalism can take that Chesterton tackles in this chapter, and the other one being materialism, which, which that takes place towards the end of the chapter. Really, what, what he does here, he has this conversation with the publisher at the beginning, and then he transitions to talking about original sin. The other second most famous quote from this chapter is where he says, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. So what he's, what he's getting at here is in, in this talk on original sin is the common sense fact that there is something wrong with the world, that there's something wrong with us. I think we, we talked about original sin last time as being you know, again, not talking about it in a technical sense, it's a disharmony, a disharmony with us and God, with us and each other, with us in creation, a disharmony within ourselves. Everybody, every ideology acknowledges something is wrong with the world. Now, Chesterton brings up original sin. He goes on to say that the moderns, even modern Christians, deny original sin. He has some great quotes about how ironic that is to be a Christian and deny original sin, but hold to something like the sacrament of baptism, which is not as obvious as original <laughs> sin is, right? Yeah. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on his original sin spiel here? No, this is something which um, I forget whether or not we included it in the podcast or we edited it out, but it's something I know that we talked about last time. Is a common problem I've had is that uh, you encounter people who are opposed to Christianity because, you know, they, they want to believe in sort of the goodness of all people. Um, and I think Christianity, so often in political philosophy or in other kinds of philosophy, you're presented with uh, philosophy, putting philosophers in buckets, right? So Hobbes talks about man in the state of nature, and he talks about man in the state, stand of, state of nature as being evil. So, so for Thomas Hobbes, you know, like we're all just in the bad bucket. If you, you talk about a Rousseau, the noble savage, or these sorts of ideas, right? Man is born free and everywhere is in chains. Then there's this idea of, of what we'll call in the trivialities of today, hashtag blessed, right? Where the human person <laughs> is originally good and then technology or society. government or society yeah. or something comes in and corrupts it. Um, and everyone wants to put human people into these sort of two two buckets and we want to understand ideologies as saying either people are bad or people are good 
um, the thing that's often misunderstood about Christianity, uh, especially about original sin, is that um, there is this original goodness, the human person, and it's in its deepest, earliest formation is made by God, and he can only make good. And yet, and the original sin is the big and yet, um, and yet you see all around us people hurting people. I mean, we don't have to talk about current events, but I mean, right now it's one of the things that everyone's wrestling with is, is the ugliness with which human person can treat another human person. There, right in front of us, is, is sort of the wickedness and the vileness. And the reconciliation of the two in Christianity is that God made us good. There is this phenomenon where we don't do good, and that, in its simplest fashion, is, is original sin. You know, what I wanted to zero in on was that discontent. I think that's really important. And I think you see this in the United States a lot. You see people, you know, there, there have been reports that have come out about increases in deaths of despair. And these are zeroed in very often on very well-to-do communities. You know, you have communities who have everything in the world, uh, everything the world says should make them happy, youth, uh, wealth, prestige, and yet there's something missing. Um, maybe even in our own lives, you know, we've experienced this. You know, everyone says we, sh- we have everything going for us, but there just seems to be something missing. I think this discontent is really important to grasping original sin. Or maybe you've had, uh, you know, I'll, I'll share this. Uh, m- some of you listening probably know this. You know, years ago, I had a pretty serious medical condition. I had a, I had a brain tumor, which, which is serious, and thanks be to God, I'm fine now. But there was a couple-year period where I knew I had a brain tumor. I didn't know what kind of brain tumor it was. So some brain tumors are fatal. Some brain tumors aren't that big of a deal, relatively speaking. And so when I finally got a diagnosis, it was a relief. It was like, I have a name for it. I, I knew something was wrong. Now I know what it is. Uh, and thanks be to God, it was something that was treatable. But it's similar with original sin. If we have this discontent, we know we're made for more, but we, but we know there's something wrong, but we just don't know what it is. Original sin, it, when we discover it, it, you know, even if we discovered it new, even if we learned about this as a kid, and then we, like Chesterton, we become the English yachtsmen looking, searching for, for what's wrong with the world, what, what's purpose and meaning, and we come back and we see original sin anew, uh, something old is something new, it's, it's a beautiful doctrine because there is something wrong with the world. There is something wrong with me and you. No, that, that's great. I, I, love, I love what you're saying because that is my own experience too with this. Growing up as a child, thinking of it in a very legalistic sense. Absolutely. Right. Uh, my understanding of like punishment and justice based upon you did X, therefore you receive punishment Y, that sort of made sense to me. But then when it came to original sin, that didn't make any sense because I didn't do that. Exactly. And then you have to understand that um, original sin is not like particular sin. And I think this is the problem that, that so many people have. Original sin does not cover particular sin. There was a particular sin of, of Adam and Eve. What that introduced is, is a whole other kind of mode, a way of being. Well, I feel like we've gone off into this little rabbit hole here. And there were a few other things I know we sat down to talk about today. We did. Um, and one of them, I think, was a, a really good point that I, I don't want us to miss. I don't know if we have time here to read the, the whole of this paragraph. 
it says, it is true that some speak lightly and loosely of insanity as in itself attractive. But a moment's thought will show that if disease is beautiful, it is generally someone else's disease. A blind man may be picturesque, but it requires two eyes to see the picture. And similarly, even the wildest poetry of insanity can only be enjoyed by the sane. To the insane man, his insanity is quite prosaic because it is quite true. A man who thinks himself a chicken is to himself as ordinary as a chicken. And he goes on from there. And the point that, that we had shared together as he nears the end of the paragraph, he says, uh, the old fairy tale makes the hero a normal boy. It is his adventures that are startling. They startle him because he is normal. But in the modern psychological novel, the hero is abnormal. The center is not central. Hence, the fiercest adventures fail to affect him adequately, and the book is monotonous. You can make a story out of a hero among dragons, but not out of a dragon among dragons. The fairy tale discusses what a sane man will do in a mad world. The sober, realistic novel of today discusses what an essential lunatic will do in a dull world. I had a few thoughts, but did you want to share your thoughts on that first? I, I want to hear what you have to say. I, there's a lot that there's a lot that's really beautiful here. Well, I'll, I'll I'll point this out: the idea of poetry, similarly, even the wildest poetry of insanity can only be enjoyed by the sane. That there is this, there is a harmony between reason and poetry. Yeah, for me, as the as the literature professor, I I love this quote because it it sums up my dissatisfaction with so much of modern plot where it's a dragon among dragons. And we were talking about this uh, in movie phenomenon, right? Of a Rambo, right? right. It's, an it's anti-hero. An anti-hero where it's an, it's the town, which is ordinary. It's the individual, which is insane. Uh, and this sort of manifests itself in, in uh, what these sort of movies and novels do in, in the modern ages. Well, the, the solution here is to is to introduce the dragon, is to introduce the insane person who tries to, in the best of them, they try to point out the insanity of what is what appears to be normal but is insane. In the very worst of them, they try to they be absurd. They, they glorify it. They right? glorify an absurdity. They glorify an absurdity. You look at a movie like The the Joker that came out this past Absolutely. year. You know what's interesting? Uh, I've uh, been something of a Rocky fan since I was like uh, five years old or whatever. But I recently saw something on TV about the original script for Rocky. Originally, Rocky Balboa, this is the Sylvester Stallone's boxing franchise, mm -hmm. if you guys don't know what I'm talking about. But, you know, the, the first movie is a story about kind of this club fighter who, through a happenstance, gets to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world, something that's not very realistic. And spoiler alert, he goes the distance with this character who's supposed to be a fictional version of Muhammad Ali. Anyways, the original script had him being essentially an anti-hero, throwing the fight because life was absurd. Yeah. And you think of of like like how do you walk away from a movie where that's the conclusion? You walk away feeling a little depressed. Whereas, you know, Rocky as it is, it might yeah, look, Rocky's corny and cheesy. But it, it's it's an uplifting hero story in the end. It's weird that you picked two Sylvester Stallone movies, Rambo and Rocky. There are people, and you talk about the script. The script of one is good, and the script of the one isn't. You know what? There are people who would not be surprised. Uh, I I used to be a big Sly Stallone fan, so 
gosh. Well, this is a Chesterton book podcast, so we're going to... Chesterton slash Stallone podcast, right? I thought that's what I signed up to do. Uh, th- that's all That's all well and good here. So I think this is something that, again, Chesterton's writing over 100 years ago, and I think it still needs to be on the forefront of, of minds of creatives today. There's a couple other quotes in here that I know that we wanted to get to, and I'm looking at I'm looking at the time, and I'm I'm making sure that we we don't uh, go over long. Blending in from that quote, he then talks about imagination and poetry as another way of approaching the world. With what we do in the Humanitas Institute, formed so much by um, the thought of the Reverend Doctor Steve Bissau, the imagination is the linchpin between our sensory experience and reason uh and it, it's what keeps both of them um in check chesterton here it has this wonderful section on the imagination and i don't think that we have time to read all of it but i'm gonna indulge myself here again by reading a selection go for it so a little further in the next paragraph uh he begins discussing poets and and reason and he says everywhere we see that men do not go mad by dreaming Critics are much madder than poets. Homer is complete and calm enough. It is his critics who tear him into extravagant tatters. Shakespeare is quite himself. It is only some of his critics who have discovered that he was somebody else. (laughs) And though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. I love love that line. I I know. See, as a classicist, the Homer one is the one that, that gets me. Um, but I, I know that you, you yeah. as the religious, yes, the, okay. the... Yeah, he's talking about the book of Revelation there, if you don't know. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, and he continues on, he says, the general fact is simple. Poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and so make it finite. And I think this is something that um, we all have to come to, to realize today. We all have these plans and schemes for fixing the world's problems. And it's not to say that the problems aren't real and they don't deserve attention, but the frustration and anger is going to increase to infinite amounts if you don't realize that if our approach is a purely rationalistic approach, if our approach doesn't understand to the mystical experience of the human person and encounter the fact that people are sinful, then you are, are not going to make it through. You're, At- well, and he says this in the next line. He says the result of is mental exhaustion. You know, I think the poet's way of viewing the world sees an infinite sea and can contemplate that. Whereas the rationalist tries to make it finite, something it can't do. So there's this mental exhaustion and fatigue. Or, or I think what you'll see is you'll see a rejection of the infinite sea. You know, this isn't something I can chart and, and measure, and uh, it won't fit into this nice little scheme I've invented. So forget this infinite sea. So it must not be true. must not be true. But the poet is able to look at this infinite sea and appreciate and contemplate it uh, and enjoy it. He's fine with not cataloging every yeah. nook and cranny of it. Yeah, and, and all of it is um, reminding me of this great book by um, Dr. James Taylor, Dr. Taylor himself, I got to know, he passed away about a month ago, uh, so pray for his soul, but I got to know him a little bit over the the past few years, and one of the things that he really was talking about towards the end was uh, not just poetic imagination, or sorry, poetic knowledge, 
sorry, the book is Poetic Knowledge. Uh, the book is Poetic Knowledge, and he also talked about mystical knowledge, uh, a way of receiving reality and receiving the divine in a mystical manner, which is which is what Chesterton says, right? Chesterton goes on to say in the chapter that mysticism is what keeps us sane. Yeah, he does. I'm not a religious. Uh, you are. So maybe you could talk a little bit about mysticism from your perspective as you're reading Chesterton here, because obviously, you know, we, we think of him as sort of the witty writer of paradoxes, the Englishman, right? So we don't often think of Chesterton as a mystic. So the root word of mysticism is mysterium, which is what the ancient church used to call the sacraments. What is a sacrament? A sacrament to the rationalist is merely a religious ritual. You know, when, when we go to communion, we're receiving a cracker, according to the rationalist. But according to the mystic, we're receiving the most precious reality we could receive. Body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, really, truly, and substantially under the appearance of bread and wine. When he says mysticism, probably, look, I'm a priest, so of course I'm going to come back to the sacraments. And I've been reading off and on, I've been reading this, this uh, Irish convert to Catholicism, Actually, he's not Irish, but it doesn't matter. His name's Roger Buck. He lives in Ireland. He's from England. And he's a big proponent of this, that, that sacraments are these mystical realities that, that we—infinitely more is going on at Mass than meets the eye. It is this intersection of heaven and earth. Uh, it is the angels and the saints are present— it requires us to get out of ourselves and get out of the normal mode of being. And this is why we've always built beautiful churches. This is why we've—this is a—actually, we were talking about this before, too. So before I came to the Diddy Center, I was chaplain of a high school, St. Thomas Aquinas High School in Overland Park. We would take a group of seniors on pilgrimage to Rome every year. And my favorite part—maybe my favorite part of being a chaplain, and period, was seeing the kids' reaction to the first— really beautiful Baroque church they walked into. I remember the first time this happened was at Chiesa Nuova, which is not, it's not a famous church in the sense that St. Peter's Basilica or St. John Lateran is, but it's beautiful. And it's... Uh, I'm going to disagree with you. <laughs> no, I don't, I'm not actually going to disagree with you You don't like Chiesa Nuova? I like Chiesa Nuova. And I think that you're, you're partly right, that you need to take them... When, I, I've led various pilgrimages to Rome as well. I, I like to take them somewhere a little smaller, like a Sancta Maria in Trastevere, yeah. Uh, yeah, something like that. I think that again, it, it's the classicist in me. I like the the ancient San Clemente. San Clemente, ah, uh, yes, taking the the students down in the San Clemente, going down into the catacombs. That's a whole other issue. Sorry, we're, we're, this is not a travel podcast. Right. Well, but what you would see is you would see them experience this wonder. You know, I had a, I, there was a kid who came up to me and said, Father, do they say Mass here still? And I was like, well, yeah, they say Mass every day here. Right, which is, again, that's the problem with modern church architecture. Absolutely. Because it, Absolutely. It, it exhibits a kind of rationalism, right? Yes. So even if it partly understands the, the dignity and the beauty of what's happening in the Mass, they think of the Mass purely in terms of a, a ritual without understanding the ritual is an embodied reality. Right. And there is there's a beautiful old church in St. Louis where I went to—I mean, there's a number of beautiful churches in St. Louis, but I was in seminary in St. Louis, St. Francis de Sales. And the stained glass windows throughout this old, beautiful Gothic church are an individual saint. 
to symbolize that the saints are present. And I mean, look, you're getting me on a hobby horse here. We could talk about church architecture and, and a sense of the sacred. And uh, But the point is, mysticism goes beyond what is right in front of our eyes to see the reality that's veiled and the supernatural reality that's veiled. And we see this most especially in the sacraments. When you go to reconciliation and the priest absolves you, it is Christ himself working through that instrument who is washing you clean of sin. When a baby is baptized, all our eyes see afterwards as a crying baby probably, but in reality, God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit's come to dwell in that child in, in a very real and profound way. You know, well, and this is why we have to cultivate the imagination. Absolutely. The, imag- the imagination's at absolutely. the core of what he's talking about in the chapter, and if it's just the strict rationalist, then the rationalist approaches the sacraments like putting quarters in a machine. Yes. It's the, it's the imaginative, it's the poet who can picture what you're just talking about. You know, as I'm listening to you understanding a proper understanding of the sacraments, what I'm not hearing there is someone who's looking at page 73 of Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm hearing there is someone who has cultivated the imagination, right? Yeah. A, a, has undergone sensory experiences, but then is able to use those sensory experiences to, to build up an imaginative life, right. a mode of thinking, a way of engaging the world. Well, and I, I, think, I think you're right. Th- this is imagination. And this is also contemplation, right? In our prayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, like, it, it paves the way. It paves the way, right, yeah. We're coming in here with just a, a few minutes left, and one of the, the other more powerful images here in chapter two is the ball and the cross, Father. I think I've read a couple of passages here, and I was wondering if I could get you to, to read one here Absolutely. for us. The whole secret of mysticism is this, that man can understand everything by the help of what he does not understand. The morbid logician seeks to make everything lucid and succeeds in making everything mysterious. The mystic allows one thing to be mysterious and everything becomes lucid. The determinist makes the theory of causation quite clear and then finds that he cannot say, if you please, to the housemaid. The Christian permits free will to remain a sacred mystery, but because of this, his relations with the housemaid become of a sparkling and crystal clearness. He puts the seed of dogma in a central darkness, but it branches forth in all directions with abounding natural health. As we have taken the circle as the symbol of reason and madness, we may very well take the cross as the symbol at once of mystery and health. Buddhism is centripetal, but Christianity is centrifugal. It breaks out, for the circle is perfect and infinite in its nature, but it is fixed forever in its size. It can never be larger or smaller, but the cross... Though it has at its heart a collision and a contradiction, can extend its four arms forever without altering its shape. Because it has a paradox in its center, it can grow without changing. The circle returns upon itself and is bound. The cross opens its arm to the four winds. It is a signpost for free travelers. That is a beautiful paragraph I read, so why don't I get your thoughts and then I'll... Yeah, bounce off of it. Well, the first thought is it's the... um... And one of the things I have not been sharing yet, and we will start sharing, is is some reading recommendations for those who want to go beyond what we're doing here. So if you want to explore this image more, Chesterton himself used it in a novel that he wrote around this time called The Ball and the Cross. So I won't describe, I won't go over and rehash the plot of it, but if you're interested in that and you find this a very interesting metaphor, there's that book to read. I don't really know what else I have to say because he says it so beautifully right there. 
Absolutely, he does. And, uh, you know, Chesterton is known as the, the king of paradox, or I guess if we wanted to do P words, it would be the prince of paradox, right? That probably <laughs> sounds nicer. Anyways, the cross is a, is a paradox. And the doctrine of the cross, the idea that by the cross Christ sets us free, that's a, that's a paradox. But, you know, what I think stands out to me is, he says, but the cross, though, though it has at its heart a collision and a contradiction— can extend its forearms forever without altering its shape. The rationalist sees the collision and contradiction of the cross and rejects it because it doesn't fit into this scheme. Uh, He sees the veil and thinks the veil is the sum of reality because he can't see what's beyond the veil. Uh, So he's trapped in this circle. But the cross, if we we enter into the mystery of the cross, uh, if if we have this poet's view on the world and we're willing to enter into this mystery and accept that my intellect isn't the sum total of reality, then, you know, we can, we, we can, in entering into this mystery, we, how does he put it earlier? We, we can actually, what does he say? One makes one thing lucid. By accepting one mystery, makes everything else lucid. Absolutely. So you accept this one mystery of the cross and, and by it, the rest of reality uh, comes to be lucid. And he gets into that in the next paragraph with the image of the sun and the moon. And it really, it reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote, uh, which I'm paraphrasing because I, you know, procrastinated and didn't write this down beforehand. But he says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Right. And Chesterton talks about this as well, the, right. Im- the impossibility of looking at the sun, by, but by the sun we see all things. Yes, yes. But you can keep going over and over on this because it's something that we, it's a problem that we've run up in modernism and we've not gotten past it. So even if in philosophically we may have worked through it, I think culturally it's very much still something which is in the forefront. It's something which even you and I struggle with because it's been introduced to us in a cultural level, not just an intellectual level. Oh, everyone. I mean, it's in the air we breathe, so to speak. It's it's behind every pop culture so he's going to go further into all this in the next chapter, the suicide of thought. No, I look. I I will say this: that this is a uh, this is this chapter is Chesterton at his finest. I think it's a very good chapter, um, and and this affects us even if you aren't a philosopher. If you think, well, this philosophy stuff. I mean, look, I I'm a college student, or I'm a, a husband or a wife. I have my kids in my job. Look, this is in the air that we breathe, so to speak. This is part of the cultural milieu that we all swim in. And Right, we, we, we all have a philosophy, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. Well, look, guys, thank you for uh, tuning in. Uh, please send us questions. If you have any questions, we're happy to answer them, even if the questions are about a chapter that we've already read. Like Socrates, we don't know anything, but we will look up. <laughs> we'll seek to explore it. We will seek to explore it, right, right. So... Uh, thank you again, and let's conclude with a uh, let's conclude with a brief prayer to Our Lady, In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, grace the Lord, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. 
You've been listening to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast at the Diddy Catholic Campus Center, serving the students, faculty, and staff of Emporia State University since 1990. To learn more about the Diddy Center, please visit us at www.diddycenter.org. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a review, or better still, share with your friends. God bless.